Improbable Research Podcast number 206. Today, we'll talk about research involving flatulence in dogs, the real-life Wizard of Oz, triskaidekaphobia when people buy a house, some boys-will-be-boys-ish research studies, why your doctor should smell, some soft-is-hard-ish research studies, you bastard and personal space at the beach. Yes, all of that. This, this is Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. Real research about anything and everything from everywhere. Research that's maybe good or bad, important or trivial, valuable or worthless, compiled for you by the producers of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. I'm Mark Abrams, editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research and founder of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. In this episode, we're resurrecting things that many of you never got the chance to hear. And we intend to make lots of new stuff. We can really use your help on that. We've started a Patreon to fund it. If you become an improbable donor on our Patreon, you can get special access to improbable things, early access to episodes, and even copies of the Annals of Improbable Research magazine. Details are at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash improbable research. For details about everything we talk about today, visit our website at improbable.com. Flatulence in Pet Dogs with Improbable Dramatic Readings by Nicole Sharp. A fair amount of research has tried to understand flatulence in dogs, understand what it is, understand why it is, and understand what and whether much can be done or should be done with it or about it. Let's sample two of those studies. Flatulence in Pet Dogs by B.R. Jones, K.S. Jones, K. Turner, and B. Rogatsky, published in the New Zealand Veterinary Journal in 1988. The authors at University College Dublin, Ireland, describe their work. The purpose of this study was to obtain information on aspects of dogs' lifestyle and diet that may be related to flatulence, whether the dogs were flatulent or not, and if the owners were concerned about flatulence of their pet. Methods. The owners of 110 pet dogs were randomly selected from the Massey University clinic files and asked to complete a questionnaire relating to their dog's flatulence, lifestyle, and diet. Results. Flatulence was detected by 47 owners and occurred more often in less active inside dogs than those exercised more often. No individual food or dietary association was identified. 19 of the 47 owners of flatulent dogs would alter their dog's diet if that change would reduce flatulence. Conclusion. Flatulence occurs in pet dogs, and most owners accept flatulence and were unconcerned about its consequence. Administration of charcoal, yucca shitigera, and zinc acetate. 
to reduce malodorous flatulence in dogs by Catriona Giffard, Stella Collins, Neil Studley, Richard Butterwick, and Roger Batt, with two T's, published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association in 2001. The authors are affiliated with the Waltham Center for Pet Nutrition in Waltham-on-the-Walds, Melton Mowbray, Leicestershire, UK. They describe their findings. Objective. To determine whether feeding activated charcoal, yucca shirigira, and zinc acetate would ameliorate the frequency and odor characteristics of flatulence in dogs. Design. In vitro screening of active agents followed by a randomized controlled trial. Animals. Eight adult dogs. Procedure. A fecal fermentation system was used to assess the effects of activated charcoal, yucca shirigira, and zinc acetate alone and in combination on total gas production and production of hydrogen sulfide, the primary determinant of flatus malador in dogs. All three agents were subsequently incorporated into edible treats that were fed 30 minutes after the dogs ate their daily rations, and the number, frequency, and odor characteristics of flatulence were measured for five hours using a device that sampled rectal gases and monitored hydrogen sulfide concentrations. Result. Total gas production and number and frequency of flatulence episodes were unaffected by any of the agents. Production of hydrogen sulfide in vitro was significantly reduced by charcoal, yucca shirigira, and zinc acetate by 71, 38, and 58% respectively, and was reduced by 86% by the combination of the three agents. Consumption of the three agents was associated with a significant decrease, 86%, in the percentage of flatulence episodes with bad or unbearable odor, and a proportional increase in the percentage of episodes of no or only slightly noticeable odor. Conclusions and clinical relevance. Results suggest that activated charcoal, yucca shitigira, and zinc acetate reduce malodor of flatus in dogs by altering the production or availability of hydrogen sulfide in the large intestine. The real-life Wizard of Oz, with improbable dramatic readings by Robin Abrams. The world's most inventive inventor, and possibly greatest human being, is having his final birthday party this week, on July 26, 2015, at the National Press Club in Tokyo. I'm flying to Japan to be part of it. He boasts more than 3,500 patents and dozens of books. He's repeatedly run for high political office in Japan, easily attracting more press coverage there than most of his competitors. He's better known in Japan than any American inventor is known in America. He's widely believed to be among the wealthiest persons in Japan. His manner is always masterly, commanding, and deadpan hilarious. He is, I think, the nearest that humanity will ever see to a real-life Wizard of Oz. He is Dr. Yoshiro Nakamatsu, also known as Dr. Nakamats. Dr. Nakamats came to Harvard in 2005, where he was awarded the Ig Nobel Prize for Nutrition for having photographed every meal he had eaten during the previous 34 years and counting. In truth, that was among his minor accomplishments. A New York Times profile 10 years earlier began, Who invented the computer floppy disk? The digital watch. Ask Dr. Yoshiro Nakamatsu, the man known as Japan's Edison, and he'll be glad to tell you it was none other than he. While some might dispute his claims, it is a fact that Mr. Nakamatsu holds the all-time record for patents, over 3,000, or three times as many as Thomas Edison, who holds second place. 
Many of the inventions are serious. Many are amusing. Many are stupefying, as you'll see upon touring his website. And please do go touring his website. Just Google it, Dr. Nakamatsu. Don't be put off when you see that it's written in Japanese. Dr. Nakamat speaks excellent, impressive English. His website speaks, in a sense, some kind of universal language that's bafflingly impressive, no matter what language you don't read. If you do visit the site, don't miss the super jumping shoes. In 2012, Smithsonian Magazine profiled Dr. Nakamatsu. This passage captures some characteristic Nakamatsian inventiveness. Nakamatsu, Dr. Nakamatsu, if you prefer, or as he prefers, Sir Dr. Nakamatsu, is an inveterate and inexorable inventor whose biggest claim to fame is the floppy disk. I became father of the apparatus in 1950, says Dr. Nakamatsu, who conceived it at the University of Tokyo while listening to Beethoven's Symphony No. 5. There was no mother. Though Dr. Nakamatsu received a Japanese patent in 1952, this virgin birth is disputed by IBM, which insists its own team of engineers developed the device in 1969. Still, to avoid conflicts, Big Blue struck a series of licensing agreements with him in 1979. My method of digitizing analog technology was the start of Silicon Valley and the information revolution, Dr. Nakamatsu says. His voice is low, slow, and patronizing, solicitously deliberate. I am a cross between Steve Jobs and Leonardo da Vinci. In 2009, Danish filmmaker Kasper Astrup Schroeder gave the world a mesmerizing documentary called The Invention of Dr. Nakamats. You can see the entire documentary on Hulu, and you really ought to see Dr. Nakamats in action. Schroeder's now making a second documentary, part of which will show Dr. Nakamats delivering the keynote address at the 2014 Ig Nobel Prize ceremony, where he came back to take a bow. Nearly all the Japanese television networks sent crews to the Ig Nobel ceremony at Harvard University to cover Dr. Nakamatsu's address. There's a new bittersweet twist to the story. Last year, 2014, Dr. Nakamatsu was diagnosed with a form of prostate cancer. His physicians tell him that this cancer will give him about another year or so to live. Dr. Nakamatsu responded to that news in upstanding Dr. Nakamatsu fashion, holding a press conference. The Japan Times reported, Eccentric inventor Yoshiro Nakamatsu, popularly known as Dr. Nakamatsu, has revealed that he has terminal cancer and is expected to live a year and a half. Nakamatsu said at a news conference Thursday that he was diagnosed with ductal prostate cancer in December and was told by doctors that he was expected to live no longer than until the end of 2015. The life of someone who published a paper proving that if you take care of your health properly, you could live to be 144 is going to end soon. I was just shocked, he said. But he also said the diagnosis prompted him to seek new innovations. I'm going to discover a new treatment, he told reporters. I last saw Dr. Nakamatsu in March of this year, 2015, when he joined several other Ig Nobel Prize winners and me doing some public science events in England, Denmark, and Sweden. A few months earlier, on the day after Apple proudly announced its new product, the Apple Watch, Dr. Nakamatsu matter-of-factly emailed me a photo with the Nakamatsian reminder that he had invented the wrist phone in 2003. The photo showed him showing off an apparently conventional cell phone affixed to his wrist with an apparently conventional stainless steel wristwatch band. In March, when he joined me in London, Dr. Nakamatsu was still in fine fighting form although he had to spend most of his time in a wheelchair. Dr. Nakamatsu confused and delighted audiences in London and everywhere we went in Europe. 
I made sure to put him on stage last as the final performer in every show. It would have been unfair to any other performer to have to follow the human thought tornado that is Dr. Nakamatsu. I knew that the audiences would be baffled and stunned as Dr. Nakamatsu alternated between describing some of his thousands of inventions and explaining plainly that he would die before the end of the year. Every show we did ended with Dr. Nakamatsu singing a newly composed song. It's a truly weird, possibly wonderful, certainly rousing hybrid of ditty and triumphal march. It's about how Dr. Nakamatsu was inspired by the cancer to stand tall, to deal with that cancer, and to draw on every intellectual fiber of his invention for the sake of all humanity, which of course includes all of his countless admirers. Every audience, everywhere, every city leaped to its many feet and ended the evening in half-wild, half-baffled, gleeful, admiring, laughing screams and applause. At the end of this podcast, I will play you a recording of Dr. Nakamatsu singing that song. I predict you will be stunned. During our travels through Europe, Dr. Nakamatsu and I and the other Ig Nobel Prize winners took several long train rides to get from city to city. On the five-hour-long rail journey from Copenhagen, Denmark to Stockholm, Sweden, admirers who recognized or were told about Dr. Nakamatsu came over and mobbed him. I tried amidst the excitement to interview Dr. Nakamatsu about his many inventions to get him to describe or even just to name some of the 3,500 inventions. Here's part of that recording. The sound quality is a little funky. This was on a train, and I was very new at making sound recordings, and you can probably make out Dr. Nakamatsu's magisterial voice better than you can hear me trying to describe, for the benefit of you, presumably dear podcast listener, what was happening. Several video crews were in the train car at the same time recording Dr. Nakamatsu's every action as they had been recording all of his other actions during our month of travels in Europe. The train conductor, happening into the car, saw the video crews and saw the excited train car full of passengers and became alarmed. Video recording is not permitted on Swedish trains, she told us. And then I said to her, well, listen and, and hear for yourself what happened. Which supply energy and uh, food in the house. Smart snack, smart machine, brain power tester. Brain concentrating device, smart machine. I'm here right next model to two. Dr. Model three, train model four, model five, Sweden. model six. Super celebrated with computer, train, they Mr. Utah. Back to enemy missile base. He tell them about some of his most cosmic power energy. Train is moving along. Human heat motor. Energy. Still more people. Cipher. Side of the door. Trying. Ninja IT, which is individual transportation. World's smallest toilet. One side of viewer. Nakad. Realizing that they're this Strong glass. I guess you could say in the wind generator reading by easy visiting a step many of his most popular defense pieces. system 22 century radio secret weapon for man secret weapon cancer beating song beating cancer robot 
Dr. Nakamatsu, could, it, could I get more detail about that secret weapon? That sounds so intriguing. Dr. Nakamatsu is pausing for a moment. He's looking at me. Could I hear more about the secret weapon invention, Dr. Nakamatsu? This is a secret. Thank you. Dr. Nakamatsu is now continuing to read the list of his inventions. Kerosene oh, bomb? He, he was interrupted for several seconds. came up and kissed him. That was why. Quick, was why com he uh, compress the air heater. Oh, now several, uh, auntie, several of us. Great women are house. crowding closer and kissing him. Uh, you need special permits to film on board our trains. Okay. We're not filming. No, okay. Ah. Okay, because uh, 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 in order to use, operate cameras like these, you, have, you need to get, collect oh. a special film okay. permission. Okay, is, our, is audio um, okay? Uh, this is just audio oh, that I'm okay, doing. Okay, yeah. Okay. Otherwise, you need to collect permits from okay. our legal oh, okay. department, okay? Okay, great, thanks. Yep. Many people here have video cameras out there. They're turning them off at the request of the train. And the train staff are being very polite and nice about it. We'll continue with this audio recording on this historic occasion. Kerosene pump, floppy disk, riding in a train Quick. from Copenhagen anti-earthquake house. Water-driven car, fuel cell, hydrogen-driven car, oh, more, more, still more people coming into the car. Afraid this, this is automatic becoming logistically not possible for me to continue here because they're starting to climb on my back So I want to thank Dr. Nakamatsu for allowing us to be present gear, as he recites some of his equipment. Thank you, Dr. Nakamatsu. Thank you. This is about 13. It's about the fear of the number 13. The yeah. word for that is triskaidekaphobia. The title of this is Triskaidekaphobia and North American Residential Real Estate Prices. It's by James Larson at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. That's an unusual title, isn't it? Triskaidekaphobia and North American Residential Real Estate Prices. Yes, but I like it. It's very compact. This is about a previous study led its authors to conclude that superstition impacts price formation for single-family dwellings in the Vancouver area. Houses there... Wait, 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 explain that, please. Okay. There was a study that said that superstition... Uh, affects housing prices in Vancouver, which I think is in Canada. Houses there with an address that end in the unlucky number 13 are found to sell at a discount compared to otherwise similar houses. The primary objective of this study is to determine whether the previous results apply in another North American housing market. We're smack in the middle of an ongoing effort to understand something. The fear of the number 13 is pervasive, and there is a name for this fear, triskaidekaphobia. Friday the 13th seems to be a particularly bad day for the superstitious. Although in Greece, Spain, and Mexico, the unlucky day is not Friday the 13th, but Tuesday the 13th. The author here gives us some examples of how this plays out. Yeah, superstition associated with the number 13 has been shown to influence behavior and has substantial economic impact. It has been estimated that between 800 and 900 million is lost in business every Friday the 13th because some people will not fly or conduct business as normal on that date. Uh, no airline flight has numbered 13. In addition, superstition has been shown to affect the stock market. Kolb and Rodriguez in 1987 report that the mean stock market returns on Friday the 13th are significantly lower than the mean returns on other Fridays. 
What is a mean return? Uh, the average return. What does the average return mean? It means like uh, the most, it, the, the average return means the average, like what, is, what does return mean? When they, when they say return. How much here? money they make. The average amount of money that they make on Fridays. They put all their effort into this and what returns, if it works out well, is money. Yes, money. Oh my about, God, there's an equation here. Oh my God. How about, let me ask you about that word returns. Yes. Tax returns. Yes. What does that mean? I don't know, but obviously it's the amount of money that the government gets from you in taxes. I don't know why it's called returns. Don't ask me. The money me. turns to, and comes toward you and then it returns and goes away. Yes. Tell us about this equation. The equation. The equation is wild. It has capital letters in it. I love that. The equation uh, is very complicated and has many, 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 many things. It uh, many, many parameters, many of which I don't know what they are. Year, area, winter, fall, spring, own, none, full, brick, air, soft, lot, cond, bath, age, tricks, <laughs> beta, alpha, log of the price, logarithm of the price. This is great. There's an equation. The logarithm of the price equals something. And I guess what's interesting about it is, um, wow. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of things it depends on. Are there baths? How old is it? Uh, the address, whether how, it's 13 or not, but there's a 13 in the address. How does somebody come up with an equation like this? They make it up. Yeah. They make it up and then they see if, if they can learn anything from it. Ah. And that's what this is really all about. Yeah. They want to see whether... The, so you make an equation with a bunch of parameters and you say, does the fact that it has the number 13 in it have any effect on the price? And then you... Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's get to the end here. Okay. Does it? In analyzing single family house transactions in Montgomery County, Ohio, we find no significant difference in prices that's between... That's no significant. No significant difference in prices between houses with an address of 13 and other houses with an address that range from 1 through 99. A significant price difference, however, is discovered between houses with seven different house numbers and other properties. These differences are attributed to coincidence because all but one of these numbers has no reputation of being particularly lucky or unlucky. That's very strange. Saying that 13 is not a bad, doesn't have any effect on price, but seven other numbers do? <laughs> if you have lots and lots of data, do you find that patterns somehow appear? Yes. First of all, though, the first thing I thought of, honestly, when I read this is that Vancouver and Montgomery County, Ohio are quite different places. One is probably suburban and one not. Would you expect one to be more superstitious than the other? Yeah. And also one is Canadian and doesn't take into account the population. Canada in general and Vancouver in particular has many, many immigrants from other countries, including China. So who knows? I don't know whether different cultures have different amounts of superstition, but I'm, I'm guessing that they do. I think Midwesterners may be the least superstitious. You've could lived, be, could you've, be, right? You've lived in both countries. What's your gut feeling? I've never been to Montgomery County, Ohio. You have some superstition that's keeping you away. <laughs> Yes. Anyhow, all I'm saying is they've looked at the data and uh, they say there's no effect. So I think the point is that what you can learn from this is if you live in the vicinity of Montgomery County, don't worry about buying a house with 13 in the number. Okay. 
And their almost final words here. The results of the present study combined with the methodological problems with the previous study and the suspicion that the Vancouver area does not include a substantial number of individuals who are triskaidekaphobics suggest the possibility that results of the previous study are also best explained by coincidence rather than non-rational market behavior. I don't know how they know that a substantial number of individuals are not triskaidekaphobics. They're saying they suspect it. Yes, but you can't say I suspect it in a paper. They just did. Yes. Is it just one guy? I guess he can do whatever he wants. I wonder whether he lives in Montgomery County, Ohio. Boy, this, you know what? I really wouldn't take anything away from this. It's inconclusive. Let me just ask you a yes, no question. Yes. You live in a house. Yes. Is the house numbered 13? No. Would I buy a house with a number 13? Yeah, I don't know. It's not my favorite number. 15 would be nice. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Boys will be boys. A look at some research studies by and for adolescent males of all ages and sexes, with dramatic readings by Chris Katsapas. The Adaptive Function of Masturbation in a Promiscuous African Ground Squirrel by Jane M. Waterman, published in the journal PLOS One in 2010. The author at the University of Central Florida reports, I examined the factors influencing masturbation by male Cape Ground Squirrels, Xerus inoris, in light of a number of functional hypotheses. I observed the squirrels for 2,000 hours with 10x50 binoculars from trees or a vehicle situated within 40 meters of the perimeter of a burrow cluster. An oral masturbation was recorded when a male sat with head lowered and an erect penis in his mouth, being stimulated with both mouth, fellatio, and forepaws masturbation, while the lower torso moved forwards and backwards in thrusting motions, finally culminating in an apparent ejaculation, after which the male appeared to consume the ejaculate. Because both the mouth and forepaws were used during this behavior, I will use the term masturbation. My findings. Masturbation was far more frequent on days of female estrus and mostly occurred after copulation. Masturbation rates were higher in dominant males, which copulate more than in subordinates and increased with number of mates a female accepts. My conclusions. These results suggest that masturbation in this species was not a response to sperm competition, nor a sexual outlet by subordinates that did not copulate. Instead, masturbation could function as a form of genital grooming. Female cape ground squirrels mate with up to ten males in a three-hour estrus, and by masturbating after copulation, males could reduce the chance of infection. 
differences in breast shape preferences between plastic surgeons and patients seeking breast augmentation by H.C. Xia and G.J. Thompson, published in the journal Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery in July 2003. The authors at Yale University School of Medicine explain. In consultations with patients seeking breast augmentation, we have noted that most women express a desire for upper pole fullness. We routinely request that patients seeking augmentation bring in images from popular magazines to demonstrate the desired breast size. See figure one. Although patients give no indication that the shapes that they are using as examples may be abnormal, most plastic surgeons would probably consider many of them to be unnatural. Methods. 12 lateral breast profiles representing a range of concavities and convexities in upper pole shape were selected from a database of photographs of anonymous volunteers who had previously consented to the use of images for research purposes. The 12 shape profiles, see figure 3, were used to create a survey. Respondents were collected as a convenience sample and were divided into three cohorts, namely a plastic surgeon cohort, a cosmetic patient cohort, and a lay respondent cohort. The cosmetic patient cohort consisted of female patients who had presented to our cosmetic clinic requesting breast augmentation. Lay participants included individuals who did not regularly see uncovered breasts in the course of their daily work activities. They were not intended to be representative of the general population, but served as an arbitrary point of reference for the other two groups. Results the plastic surgeon cohort rated concave upper pole contours significantly higher than did the patient cohort for attractiveness, naturalness, and personal ideal. For convex contours, the plastic surgeon cohort gave significantly lower scores than did the patient cohort. The lay category demonstrated preferences intermediate between those of the other two groups. Changes in pornography-seeking behaviors following political elections, an examination of the challenge hypothesis by Patrick M. Markey and Charlotte N. Markey, published in the journal Evolution and Human Behavior in November 2010. The authors at Villanova University and Rutgers University explain. The current study examined whether or not individuals who vicariously win a competition seek out pornography relatively more often than individuals who vicariously lose a competition. By examining a portion of Google keyword searches during the 2004, 2006, and 2008 U.S. election cycles, the relative popularity of online pornography keyword searches was computed for each state and the District of Columbia the week before and the week after each election. Individuals located in states voting for the winning political party tended to search for pornography keywords relatively more often than individuals residing in states voting for the losing political party. Why Your Doctor Should Smell, with an improbable dramatic reading by Jean Burko Gleason. Doctors and dentists and nurses and all sorts of medical people really ought to smell, suggests this paper. Scratch and Sniff, the Dynamic Duo, by W.Z. Stitt, spelled S-T-I-T-T, and A. Goldsmith, published in the Archives of Dermatology in 1995. The authors of the University of Rochester point out a deficiency, a gross deficiency, in modern medical training. Are odors diagnostic? In this age of polymerase chain reactions, in situ hybridization, and immunohistochemical staining, is there any room left for the nose in diagnosing disease? Long ago, and perhaps far away, smell was crucial to describing an illness. Infectious diseases were known by their characteristic odors. 
scrofula as smelling like stale beer, typhoid like freshly baked brown bread, rubella like plucked feathers, and diphtheria as sweetish. Soft is hard. Some research studies that give further evidence why the soft sciences are the hardest to do well, with improbable dramatic readings by Bill Hostin. Let's look at two pairs of studies. The first pair is about secrets. The Physical Burdens of Secrecy by M. L. Slepian, E. J. Masicampo, N. R. Tusi, T. O. O. S. I, and N. Ambody, published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology in 2012. The authors at Tufts University, Wake Forest University, Columbia University, and Stanford University explain. The present work examined whether secrets are experienced as physical burdens, thereby influencing perception and action. Four studies examine the behavior of people who harbored important secrets, such as secrets concerning infidelity and sexual orientation. People who recalled were preoccupied with or suppressed an important secret, estimated hills to be steeper, perceived distances to be farther, indicated that physical tasks would require more effort and were less likely to help others with physical tasks. The more burdensome the secret and the more thought devoted to it, the more perception and action were influenced in a manner similar to carrying physical weight. Thus, as with physical burdens, secrets weigh people down. Big Secrets Do Not Necessarily Cause Hills to Appear Steeper by Etienne P. Lebel and Christopher J. Wilbur, published in the journal Psychosomatic Bulletin and Review in 2014. The authors at Montclair State University and the University of Wisconsin explain. Slepian, Masakampo, Tusi, and Embody in 2012 found that individuals recalling and writing about a big, meaningful secret judged a pictured hill as steeper than those who recalled and wrote about a small, inconsequential secret. We sought to corroborate Slepian et al.'s finding. We were unsuccessful. Now let's look at a pair of studies about pedestrians. Passing Encounters, Patterns of Recognition and Avoidance in Pedestrians by Miles L. Patterson, A. Webb, and W. Schwartz, published in the journal Basic and Applied Social Psychology in 2002. The authors explain that this study examined the patterns of avoidance and recognition in pedestrians as they passed a confederate, specifically the effects of condition. Did they avoid? Did they look? Did they look plus smile? and the effects of the sex of the Confederate on passing pedestrians were examined in a field study on over 600 participants. A log-linear analysis of the results showed support for the hypothesis of greater glancing towards the female Confederates, and greater glancing when the Confederates looked and smiled. Through a glass darkly, effects of smiling and visibility on recognition and avoidance in passing encounters by Miles L. Patterson and Mark E. Tubbs, published in the Western Journal of Communication in 2005. The authors explain that 
The first purpose of the study was to replicate the results of an earlier experiment by Patterson, Webb, and Schwartz in 2002, showing that the addition of a smile from the Confederate greatly increased pedestrians' responsiveness. A second purpose was to determine if Confederates' visibility, were they wearing sunglasses or not, in these passing encounters would affect pedestrians' reactions and provide insight regarding the functions involved in these events. The hypothesis that Confederates who wore sunglasses would receive fewer glances than those who did not, and that this effect would be greater for the male Confederate, were not supported. You bastard. With an improbable dramatic reading by Robin Abrams. Some years ago, I read what may be the most satisfying, most incisive academic study of the past century. It's called You Bastard, a narrative exploration of the experience of indignation within organizations. David Sims, who published it in the journal Organization Studies in 2005, was head of the Faculty of Management at Cass Business School in London. He wrote, Our patience with forming interpretations and reinterpretations of others' behavior is not unlimited. The time comes when we lose interest in trying to understand and conclude that the other person is behaving in a way that is simply unacceptable. The internal discourse changes from one in which the other is construed as behaving strangely or as seeing the world differently or even as mistaken. The discourse becomes instead one in which they are wrong, wicked, simply a bastard and should be treated as such. Not everyone would use the word bastard for those with whom they are angry. However, the word was in very widespread use in the situations in which I have seen indignation expressed and was certainly used by several participants in all three of the narratives quoted in this paper. I shall therefore use it without further apology or circumlocution, trusting the reader to translate between it and other words that express indignation, if appropriate. From his vast experience working in and with businesses and universities, Professor Sims selected three cases in which people came to define a colleague, generally a senior manager, as a bastard. One of the roots of feeling that someone is a bastard is the failure to find any other way of making sense of their behavior. I shall suggest that for many, the definition of someone else being just a bastard is a definition of last resort. Indeed, part of the indignation may arise from the feeling of being forced into an uncomfortable style of definition. No special efforts are required to collect such narratives. Many organizational members are marinated in them. The narratives raise a wide range of the issues involved in considering the experience of indignation in organizations. However, the narratives make no attempt to cover the complete range of those who might be designated bastards. First comes Mark, the clever bastard. Because everyone knew that he was clever, they were not too surprised that they could not always understand him. A colleague said of this bastard, We all thought that everyone else understood, and that if not that, at least Mark knew how it was going to work, but he didn't. Another colleague, whom I will call Jill, was the only one who expressed doubt from an early stage, and she was the only member of the senior management team who was still working in the organization one year after the project. Everyone else had moved on, in most cases involuntarily. All of them, except the incorrigibly nice Paul, would refer to their former consultant as that bastard. Next up, Jeff, the bastard ex machina. Indignation was almost always for what he had not done, rather than for what he had done. 
As one of his deputies put it, The trouble is that when the heat is on and you need support, Jeff will never be there. You'll get the sympathetic look, perhaps the comment that he has always found a particular investment rule very tough, and you think, you bastard, you wrote that rule. You're the boss here. You could have helped and you didn't. Finally, there is Alan, the devious bastard, whose bastardry is subtle. Alan had a reputation for having always turned up in roles without anyone acknowledging having appointed him to them. The general view of him around the organization was that he was not very competent at his managerial tasks, but that his staff were intensely loyal to him. For some reason, a lot of people outside his department saw fit to comment on his physical makeup, which was quite short and fat with a tendency to profuse sweating. Members of his department did not appear to see him physically in the same way. Managers outside Allen's department felt that Allen was a devious, slimy bastard, and that those members of Allen's department who believed what he was telling them were thereby showing themselves to be A, easily fooled, and B, incapable of sound, evidence-based judgment. So in this case, bastardry is not only being attributed to an individual, but thickness and incompetence are being attributed to any who were prepared to ally themselves with that individual. All this is not just about bastards. Professor Sims is equally fascinated by the people, himself among them, who ultimately decided that the Marks and Jeffs and Allens are scum. Most of them still felt angry at that bastard's behavior, explains Professor Sims. Indeed, part of the anger when anybody in these cases did describe someone else as a bastard may have had to do with their feeling almost trapped into that definition by the target of it. Not only were they angry about particular behavior on the part of the other person, but they were even more angry because they could not make sense of that behavior without thinking of the person as a bastard, and this felt like failure to them. When someone wishes to present their self in some character, for example, as a strong defender, the knight in shining armor, heroic victor, and so on, they need something to defeat. It is an accepted role of senior managers that they should go into battle on behalf of their subordinates, so there is an expectation on them at times to take on some such role. But if they're going to defend good against evil, they need something or someone that they can characterize as evil to defend it against. St. George is utterly dependent on the dragon for his narrative power, and indeed for being remembered. Debates about whether he had any historical basis are are more or less irrelevant here. St. George needs his dragon as a matter of narrative necessity. This may lead into a vicious circle by which the definition of bastard is self-proving. Someone can find that they have no other way of defining another's behavior, and this leaves them feeling entrapped. As they begin to treat the other person as if they were a bastard, so they conclude that they must indeed be a very unpleasant character, because there is no way they would be treating them so badly if they were not. Spacing at the Beach, with dramatic, improbable readings by Andrew Berry. Some decades ago, beachgoers in three countries found that strangers were coming up to them asking strange questions. The strangers turned out to be fairly harmless. They were academics, driven by a fierce desire to understand how much space people appropriate for themselves when they plop down on a beach. Until 1974, only lifeguards and the beachgoers themselves knew the answer. No one in academia had sufficient data to address the question with any degree of authority. 
In midsummer of the previous year, Julian Edney and Nancy Jordan Edney of the University of Arizona had traveled 2,000 miles east and spent five days striding up and down a beach. Their subsequent report called Territorial Spacing on a Beach, published in the journal Sociometry, was a landmark in the history of studying territorial spacing on beaches. Here are the questions that Julian Edney and Nancy Jordan Edney say drove them to drive those 2,000 miles and plop themselves on a beach and carefully observe the persons there assembled. A. What effect does local population pressure have on group territory size? B. What effect does the length of tenancy have on territory size or other aspects of the territory? And C. Does the internal composition of a group e.g. size, sex of members, age of members, have a bearing on the territorial claim? And D. Do group characteristics bear on members' perceptions of ambient conditions, such as population pressure? Edney and Edney went about it with a degree of meticulousness, a meticulousness evident in their writing, as in this passage. The beach was a straight, relatively homogeneous area, one and three-fourth miles long, accessible from a road behind. The study extended over five weekend days during the latter part of June and the first part of July. Starting from one end of the beach, the authors worked as a pair and approached every tenth group of people settled on the sand. Generally, the experimenters divided each day's interviews equally between morning and afternoon. Starting points on the beach were reversed each time and also from day to day. As an opening to each interview, the experimenters explained that they were doing a survey. When the respondent group agreed, one of the experimenters proceeded to conduct a short interview. The Edneys artfully collected data, once it had been crunched and interpreted, told the Edneys several things, they tell us. As groups get bigger, they tend to grab less space per person. Men tend to grab more space than women. And there were nuances that were not so easily interpreted then or now. Seven years later, another American, H.W. Smith at the University of St. Louis, went to Europe, determined to measure the spacing between people on a beach in France and then on a beach in Germany. Smith succeeded. Smith's report, Territorial Spacing on a Beach Revisited, a cross-national exploration, appeared in the journal Social Psychology Quarterly. In both Germany and France, Smith found much the same thing that the Edneys had seen in America. And Smith discovered something more. He writes, Lone Germans had more circularly shaped claims than lone French persons. Also, Germans overwhelmingly 99% tended to structure very rigidly public space by building sandcastles around their territories. The urge to measure people's personal space has not been confined to beaches. In 1974, Paul Nesbitt of the University of Nevada, Reno, and Gerard Stephen of the University of California, Santa Barbara, published Personal Space and Stimulus Intensity at a Southern California Amusement Park. Nesbitt and Stephen explain how they sent an attractive young woman, or alternatively a man whose attractiveness they do not so carefully specify, into the queues for various attractions at an amusement park. It was found that subjects immediately behind them in line stood further away when the stimulus persons wore brightly coloured clothes than when they wore more conservative clothing. Subjects similarly stood further away when the stimulus persons used perfume or 
aftershave lotion than when they used no scent. In 2004, Masai Shiyomi at Ibaraki University in Mito, Japan, performed an Edney-esque set of measurements with cows. Details can be found and enjoyed in her report, How Are Distances Between Individuals of Grazing Cows Explained by a Statistical Model? This is the sixth in Shiyomi's ongoing and subtle series of cow spacing reports. Cows in a pasture, she finds, space themselves differently than do people on a beach. How exactly do cows form a crowd, and what are the implications and likely consequences of that spacing? These questions, and questions that spring from these questions, drive Shiyomi. Statistically-minded farmers will want to follow her adventures. I'll mention two of Masai Shiyomi's other cow papers. How are distances between grazing cows determined? A case study. That was published in 2004. Effects of feces on spatial distribution patterns of grazed grassland communities. That was published in the year 2010. The takeaway quote, which is somewhat misleading in that it represents only one aspect of this complex question, as described in this complex study, is a tidy 12 words long. The feces excreted by grazing cows on the grasslands were unequally distributed. You've been listening, if you've been listening, to Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. For details about what we talked about today, visit our website at improbable.com. We could very much use your help so that we can make new podcast episodes and other improbable and ignobel stuff. Details are at our website and at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash improbable research. If you become an improbable donor, you will get special access to improbable things. I'm Mark Abrams. Today, Nicole Sharp, Robin Abrams, Dr. Nakamats, Melissa Franklin, Chris Katsapas, Jean Burko Gleason, Bill Hostin, and Andrew Berry lent their voices, expertise, opinions, and personal quirks with dramatic readings from research studies you may have overlooked. It's possible that Seth Glicksman is the improbable production assistant. It's possible that the mysterious John Shetler, or maybe the subterranean Petschek did the audio engineering of this episode. Next time on this podcast, we'll look at something or other. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>